This morning, we turn to another aspect of growth. And so before we do, let's bow in prayer and ask God's help to understand his word today. Gracious God, thank you so much for your love to us and for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your love and how you've brought us today to hear your word. So Father, would you do a work in our hearts? Lord, my words are feeble and not always clear, but your word is very clear. So would you, by the Holy Spirit, unfold your word to our hearts that we might understand. And Lord, as we understand, may we be obedient to that. Father, may we see and understand and obey. Thank you for who you are, for your great mercy. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. I was able for the first time in about a year, in fact, almost a year to the day, to play golf last Monday. And the last time I played golf was the the golf charity tournament for the Wilds the year prior. And so you can understand how that, how that went. <laughs> it was a little rusty. That's okay. I, it was, I can't say a good day, a bad day on the golf course is better than a good day at the office. I can't say that because I have all good days at the office because I'm studying God's Word. Um, however, it was fun. And it was fitting to play on Monday because the day before, the, the golf legend, if you don't know anything about golf, you've heard this name, if you drink sweet tea or lemonade, but Arnold Palmer uh, passed away at the age of 87, I do believe. And so uh, as he passed away, he was a golf great. And um, it really what stood out with Arnold, he had his Arnold's, Arnie's army that followed him around, was he brought golf to the working class. Basically, it was a game that they could play because he came from, from humble beginnings and they enjoyed watching him play. In fact, here on Thursday as uh, the, the plane spread his ashes. There was Arnie's rainbow. You see it better on the screens, more than this, but a rainbow over country club that he uh, first began to play on. And so he was a, a very uh, interesting fellow. He was one who, who um, appealed to a great masses of, of golfers. And he told the story on himself once that really is appropriate to our conversation today. He told the story of a time when pride made him become overconfident. It was the 1961 Masters in Augusta. And that year, he was walking up the 18th um, fairway after having hit a very good fairway shot. Right? I mean, it landed in the fairway, and he, he was confident. He was a stroke ahead, so he was one ahead. He felt pretty confident that he was going to be, uh, be the winner of the 1961 Masters. And as he walked up the fairway for a second shot, he saw a friend on the side. The friend waved at him, and he came over to him, and the friend shook out his hand and said, congratulations. And Arnie said, thank you. He said, I knew at that minute I had lost focus. He lost focus. He said, I hit the next one in the sand trap. And then from the sand trap, I chipped it over the green and rolled off the green and then missed a putt, and there I lost by one stroke. And he said, you know, you can forget the lessons you learned or you can remember them for the rest of your life. He said, that one I remembered the rest of my life because my overconfidence and pride led me to stumble at that very critical moment, which I should not have stumbled. He was in the sand trap. Interesting in life, our pride causes overconfidence and causes us to be in the sand trap of life often. Pride can creep up on us uh, when we least expect it. 
we find ourselves proud sometimes for no good reason. Um, we look down, down on others, and they're just the same as we are. Maybe they do something wrong in a different area, but pride causes us to think of ourselves more highly, as Scripture puts it, than we ought to think. In fact, believers, followers of Christ, are not immune to this. We can particularly struggle with this. We begin to think our, our worth is in something other than in Jesus Christ. Maybe we think to ourselves, I'm worthy because of my work ethic or my brains or my talent. I've never thought this. But my beauty or, or, or my muscles. I've never particularly thought about those last two things. But maybe we're more worthy because of something that we have done or who we are intrinsically because we're just great people, right? No. It starts on a vicious cycle of always trying to prove ourselves to others, of doing more and more and earning more and more, trying to tell others that we are more important than we really are. And pride manifests itself in how we treat others. We expect them to do things for us. So often our pride lands us in the, as it were, the sand trap of life. We swing away, we draw attention to ourselves, but we have an awfully hard time of getting out of the trap. When we met last Sunday, we spoke of holiness. We spoke how to grow in Christ, the characteristic of that growing individual is he or she becomes more holy. And surprisingly enough, that as we become more holy, we do not become more prideful. In fact, we become more humble. Because we begin to see ourselves as we truly are before God. Humble. How is it that one grows humble? Is there like a humble meter that we kind of measure ourselves? Well, we have to go to God's Word. We have to understand what Jesus thinks of humility, what His standard is of being humble. We can't have our own standard. We can't have somebody else's standard. We must have Jesus' standard to grow humble. If I were to put it in a, a succinct form this morning, it says, since Jesus is our example, you and I must grow humble. The first part is Jesus is indeed our example. Would you turn to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. So the Apostle Paul is writing to another town. We saw in our scripture reading he's writing to Corinth. Now he's writing to um, the town of Philippi. He spent just a short time there. Uh, He was in jail there. Um, And now he's writing back to these people that he loves, and he's writing to them that his joy may be full as they have joy in their lives. And he writes this, and we'll begin reading in verse 3. Philippians 2, verse 3. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out uh, for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, he could have left it there. And we'd have walked away and said, Paul, that's a good idea. That's, that's really good. But Paul, in his own way, as he all, always does, puts a little emphasis on it. And the emphasis he puts here is Christ. Having this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard 
equality with God a thing to be grasped. But understand here, God the Son, Jesus, in heaven, with all the rights and authority as God, very God Himself, if you want to think about the theological term, it's the hypostatic union. Fully God, fully man. And He did not assert Himself here, the thing, the thing to be grasped. He did not assert his, the trappings of glory that came to Him as God in heaven. But He, even though He exists in the form of God, He lowered Himself. Verse 7 says, He emptied Himself, not of His Godhood, but of the things, the glory around Him, and became a man, taking the form of a bondservant. He didn't come as a king. I mean, He was the king. But kings aren't born in a a stall. They're born in a castle. They're they're born behind walls. He became a bondservant, the lowest servant, and and being made likeness of a man, being found humbled, found appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Understand, Jesus is our example. Jesus humbled himself. He didn't say, come, hey, look at me. He's shining. Why is Jesus shining as he walks all around? Only on the Mount of Transfiguration did the disciples see the glory of Jesus. Here, he humbled himself, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The idea of being obedient, he's being obedient to the will of the Father. It says, here is the plan. The plan of the Godhead is that Jesus would come as God, fully man, come to earth Live life as we did, we do it for 33 years. Experience pain and sorrow and loss, death, hunger, all these things as a man, yet without sin. And ultimately, he would go to the cross. He would die on the cross, not because the Jews, Jews were mean and the Romans were mean, but he gave himself willingly to them to sacrifice himself for us. And this is the example for this reason. God also highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This has not been fully completed yet, but one day every tongue will confess. The tongues that are in heaven, the tongues... They're in hell. The Jesus is Lord. The glory of God the Father. He followed the Father's will. Being God Himself, Jesus was. He submitted Himself to the will of the Father for this. The name of Jesus, Jehovah, Yahweh saves, would be the name on which they will bow. And so, at the very beginning of understanding humility is to understand that Jesus Himself humbled Himself. How easy it would have been for me or you had I been in His place. Yet sinful to say, look at me. He humbled Himself. Jesus is the example, your example for humility. I'm not your example. Someone you respect is not your example. Some other person who, thinks, who you think is a good Christian is not your example. Jesus is your example for humility. Because I'm going to fail in this. Oh, Stacy, no. Yes, I am going to fail in this, but Jesus never fails. Example of humility. He's our example. 
So how is it that we are to live? Does the Bible give us instruction now, because Jesus is our, is our example, instruction on how to live so that we are humble? In three areas, God gives us through the New Testament three main areas. There are other sub-areas, but three main areas that we'll look at. To give us the, the understanding of how we are to be humble. First of all, we are humble of heart. First of all, you and I must have a humble heart. And two passages, if you want to write down and look later, we're going to look at them here, but if you want to uh, take them for, for further examination, but Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 3. So Colossians 3, verse 12. And Paul again in a letter to another city. He's talking to those who are followers of Christ, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ. He's talking to them. He says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of, one, compassion, two, kindness, three, humility, gentleness, and patience. Put on a heart of humility. It's pretty interesting. To put on a heart of humility if you look in the passage as he continues, he talks about these things, about you know, considering ourselves um, dead to sin. You once walked in sin, but you no longer walk there. You've had a new self. And so he comes to, to later in the passage in verse 13, and he kind of amplifies this. This heart of humility is, is bearing with one another, having patience with one another, forgiving each other. He's speaking to believers here. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The high bar of Jesus as humble says you and I are to be patient with one another and to forgive each other. If we have a complaint against someone, forgive. Just as the Lord Do I wait for them to come crawling back to me in abject humility and say, please forgive me, Stacy, because I have sinned against you? No. And echo, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus on the cross, Stephen, as he's being stoned in the early church, bearing with him, with each other. 1 Peter 3.8 to sum it up, all of you, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Humble heart. A humble heart is what we need. That out of the heart of the issues of, our, uh, of what we come through our tongues. It, it just kind of bubbles over. We lack the filter sometimes. But a humble heart. You know, a proud heart keeps us from forgiving other people. We think, you know what, I'm worth them coming and crawling back to me and asking forgiveness. A proud heart is quickly impatient with others when they don't do things as well or as fast or, or how we want them done. A proud heart says, do it my way or the highway. Whereas a humble heart does not return evil for evil or insults when insulted but instead gives a blessing. You know, the powerful work of a humble heart is not meeting power with power, but meeting power with humility. See, this is an area that we all struggle in. Because 
Haven't you been in a situation? I know I have. And the heart just kind of... The internal... can't believe they just did that. That's pride. That's pride. Stacey, I don't have pride. We all... We all have pride. We've got to stomp on it. Next area. Humble mind. A humble mind. And this is from the heart. We move to the head, to the intellect, and how we think about things. Paul has a lot to say about our thoughts. He has uh, one phrase. He's every, taking every thought captive. The idea of, let me, think of, let me constrain my thoughts. Let me think only the right things. And so here we have the humility. Romans 12, a familiar passage if you know the Bible. Uh, Beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Be not conformed to, um, to this world, but by the conforming of your mind, transforming your mind, be conformed to what God says. And then following on this, he says, For through the grace given to me, Paul's writing, God has given grace to him to write this, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. Ugh. Paul, did you have to say that? The mind, the thoughts, not to think more highly of myself than I ought to think. In the passage, he continues, For just as we have many members in one body, all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. So he goes through and says, you know, you've been given different gifts and talents in the body of Christ. We're not all the same. That's a good thing. Okay? We all have different ways that we contribute to the body of Christ. He's speaking to believers, those who follow Christ. You're not all the same. And so don't think that the gift that God gave you makes you more important than somebody else. Don't think that the gift of, that God gave you to teach or to preach makes you more important than somebody else. Okay, I'll bring it back to myself. Don't think that God, the gift that God has given you, so God hasn't given me any gifts. Yes, He has. You just haven't taken the time to, to exercise them yet. He has. But when you do exercise them and people start saying, oh, you're doing a good job. Good job. Take the encouragement, but say that all the glory goes to God. It's not me. I'm not better than somebody else. Don't think more highly than you ought to think. And so he continues, 16. This is Paul. Paul likes to hit it and then hit it again. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Associating with the lowly either could be, um, we're not quite sure by the way the Greek uh, is either associating, associating with lowly people or with lowly things. Okay? Well, I don't want to be with them, or I don't want to be at that place. Uh, no. That's not. Do not be wise in your own estima- estimation. And boy, do we struggle with that. Don't we all, as humans, follower of Christ or not, we struggle with this because we want first place. And so we think the, the mind just turns. Mm-hmm. I sure wish they would do it my way, because it's a whole lot better. And it may be. Who knows? But how you think about this, where you got the idea from the grace of God, not of yourself, do not be wise in your own estimation. You know, I can think highly of myself because Jesus saved me and made me his child. 
And that is all on Christ. Not me. I did not earn it. You did not earn it. That's the wonderful thing about salvation. Remember Ephesians 2. You're writing to the church at Ephesus. You know, not of works, lest any man should boast. And wouldn't we? Boy, I was good and Jesus saved me. No. And that is what's different from every other religion in the world. Okay, you've got to give this, you've got to obey this God and bow down. And if you're good enough, one day, maybe, possibly, if you give enough money to church, then you'll go to heaven. You come humbly, repentant, wretched, full of sin, and Jesus, by His grace and mercy, saves you. Saves me. And it's all on Him. He gets all of the credit. Not me. Not you. Our thoughts have to be going that direction. This is God's work that He's done. This is not my work. This is who God is. I have anything that I have is through God. And so our thoughts must must line up with God's thoughts here. We must we must control our thinking. Now, that's a hard thing, but that's a necessary thing for the believer. Ever been in a place where you just kind of mind just kind of races? I saw something, I don't, maybe it was on Facebook, but the difference between men and women. Women, their minds are always going. And it's charging with emotion. They're thinking about this. And men kind of like have a box of, of nothing. And it's like a big box. So you got work, you got family, you got home, you got nothing. Persons, that's not why you can explain fishing or sitting in a tree stand forever, forever or not golf, of course. No, that's not. Uh, it's just nothing. Right? Yeah. We think differently, but we must have the mind of Christ. He's our example. Our thoughts must line up with his thoughts, his action, humility of mind. And that's where the battle is. Last one. Humble life. Grow. Have a humble life. And this is kind of where the rubber meets the road. So you have the heart, our seat of emotions, the the intellect and the mind. And here's the, the outpouring, the outliving of life and how humility must be a part of that. And and I think the uh, Luke 14, I'm going to go there, is a great thing. Um, so verse 1, um, if you want to follow along with, I'll, I'll pick up on the screens in verse 7. But in verse 1, it says, It happened that when he, Jesus, went to the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. So Jesus goes for the Shabbat, the Sabbath meal. Okay, this is a great time where uh, the family sit around. He's at a Pharisee's house. Okay? Pretty high person, respected person. He goes there. And they're watching him. And someone sits near him. Uh, and there in front of him was a man. This must have been a large crowd. It wasn't just a single table. Uh, or, or maybe just across the table. There was a man suffering from dropsy. We're not quite sure exactly what that is. We think it was kind of a swelling thing. Um, it could have been some. Uh, I think at one time they, they thought it was because of immorality you got this disease. But they're watching him. Okay? And, and so Jesus sees that man. And he asked the Jews, the, the leaders, the lawyers, the ones who are, are skilled in the law of Moses, he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
because you know, they know what he's thinking, and he's thinking, I'm going to heal this person, but let's make a, a lesson of it. And so at this point, they were quiet, which is odd for them. Um, and, he, and he took hold of this man and healed him and sent him away. And maybe Jesus didn't say here, understood what they were thinking in their mind. So Sabbath day, don't do any work on the Sabbath. Okay? Um, and he healed this man. In verse 5, he said unto them, Which one of you, if he had a son or an ox, fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? If, you had, if your son fell in the whale, oh, the well, not whale, that's no one. Uh, if son fell into the well, would you not pull him up or would you say, oh, no, I can't work on Sabbath? No. Or an ox. Okay? I mean, back then, oxes were pretty important and plowed the fields. He said, yes. and the answer to the rhetorical question, because I didn't answer him, is yes, you would do that. And he's saying, why would I not heal this person? Verse 6 says, again, they uh, could make no reply. Verse 7, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they'd been picking out places of honor at the table. So understand around the table. Uh, this is the Shabbat meal. Um, and so um, there's a bit of ceremony in this meal. It's not like a Seder, but it's, it's a bit of ceremony here. And then it's a wonderful time of fellowship, uh, this Sabbath meal. But they were kind of elbowing to get the, the, the good place. Now, I don't know. I'm not totally versed in Jewish culture. It was a good place next to the food, or probably next to the important people, okay? to be seen, to be recognized. And here, this is a house of Pharisees. There are important people. Lawyers here skilled in the law, we've already understood. There, there are important people there. And so he said, I no, he noticed they've been picking places of honor, elbowing to get to the table. To help us understand this, I think it, it's good. There was a, um, an article written by three uh, Jewish young men, and this was back in 08 during um, then-Senator Obama's campaign, and they were coming up on Passover. The, more, the reason I mentioned Passover was the, the Seder, uh, and that's a very much a long, involved thing, speaking of well, how God brought the children of Israel out of Exodus and a lot of imagery there, but it can can um, um, go along, but they were on the road campaigning, and these three Jewish women were not going to be back with their family. It was pretty, it was, Passover Seder was pretty important to them, and so they decided that they would do it in the hotel they're going to stay at that night, um, and so they called ahead. A cousin was nearby, brought in some stuff they needed, all the things they needed for that, and um, they called the hotel, and they gave them, they said it was a, a, a windowless room deep inside the, the hotel near the meeting space, but it was not a, a great room. And so they laid out everything on the table, just the three of them. They were going to do it, this meal. And um, as they were getting ready to begin, uh, Senator Obama, then Senator Obama walked through and goes, hey, is this a Passover? Oh, I can't do his voice. Is this a Passover Seder? And they said, yes. And, they, uh, and he said, I'm in. And so it, the, the funny, they were writing the article that what was going to be a very quick, because we had work to do, became very long, because we didn't want to, you know, shortchange it and, and do that. And, and when he became president, they began uh, doing this, probably the first time on a regular basis, having a Seder in the White House. And we have a picture of this from that article. And so you're thinking that if you're with the president, any president, any king, any prime minister or whatever, I guess the important place would be right across from him. 
or beside him. And you think if you were in this, you know, I'd be picking places that were pretty important. Okay? It, okay, that's human nature. And so this gives us an idea. Here, they're reading through the, the Seder and the, the parts of that. An idea that people were, were moving around the position, trying to get near the important people or the important places. So Jesus takes us the opportunity, verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, the, guest, the host. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, uh, give your place to this man. There's somebody more important. So you go to the back of the line. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place. So that when one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Okay, so understand, he's talking to Jewish leaders. Okay, he's not talking to believers. I'm talking to people who follow. But he was just saying, okay, this is a normal thing to do. And here's his point. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. In life, the humbling of oneself is what God sees. The humbling of the heart. And in life, we should not, must not seek to be the one who is recognized. Allow God to do that. See, when we become more holy, become more like Christ, we take upon ourselves this attitude in life. I don't need to be seen. I need to leave humbly. First Peter you younger men, likewise, be, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourself, the whole body, the whole church, clothe yourself like you're putting on a garment with humility toward one another. Clothe yourself. with you. that's, that's what people see on you. Why? For God is opposed. He stands in opposition to the proud one. Wow. I don't want God to oppose me. But it gives grace the humble, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He may, may exalt you at the proper time. And that proper time may not be until we set foot in heaven. Humbling the grace of God. Shall I give one more passage for emphasis? Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul talking, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which we've been called with. How, how, do, how do I walk? with all humility, gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another. Andrew Murray said, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. Humility is rest in the Lord. Humility is to be at rest. Humility is to be like Christ.
And unfortunately, this hits us where we live. We all can probably put a finger on a time. Maybe God's bringing it up to us now. Um, At a time when we reacted out of pride. We expected better treatment because we thought we were worth it. And maybe we should have had better treatment. But that's not really the point. It really isn't the point. Humility says, I will be like Christ. See, to understand this concept of growth in being humble, to see Jesus humble, and to be humble yourself. Humility keeps us from the sin of pride. And pride is the number one thing that leads us to open sin. It was pride, by the way. Lucifer said, I will ascend to the Most High God. The serpent in the garden said to Eve, you know, if you eat this, you'll be like God. You'll know right from wrong. The serpent appealed to pride. Because we're so susceptible in that area. We think in our hearts, we don't need to watch my life for sin. I don't need to live holy. That's for other Christians. We think, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I am holy. Wow, I'm pretty good, aren't I? No. You know, you and I must guard against pride. If we are a follower of Christ and we say we are His, we must live like Him. The picture of Jesus is so great. It is the picture of one who died upon the cross, who gave himself for us. And if you're not a follower of Christ, please understand that this is the picture of our Savior. As I alluded to earlier, it is not that we earn salvation. It is not that we are great because we do certain things or we keep away from certain things. It's holiness is not a checkbox. Okay, and, and humility is just another box that we check. That's not it. It is the work of Christ that is done in our hearts. And if you're, a follower, if you're not a follower of Christ, I apologize for all the times that I and other Christians have made you think that we're better than you because indeed we are only sinners saved by Christ. And so salvation is that receiving of Jesus with understanding who He is and the righteous sacrifice that He made for us because He was sinless. He could pay the debt of our sin and so we fall upon our knees in repentance and say, Lord, I am a sinner, but your grace is great. It will cover my sin. I plead your grace, your mercy. I place my faith in you. And he invites us to be a child of God. And it is no more complicated than that. Simple faith and the grace that Christ has extended to us. And so we live not as perfect We live as those who grow in different areas, in different ways, at different rates of growth. We live to be more like Christ. So I ask you this morning two questions. If you don't know Jesus, have you seen him as the humble sacrifice? The one who loved you enough, loved me enough, that left the all the things of glory 
to die for you, to die for me. Our prayer is that you will continue to ask questions and investigate who he is. My second thought is for believers, knowing who Jesus is, remembering his humility. Are you, are we living that way? Are we living that way? Because since Jesus is our example, we must be humble. Grow, grow, and be humble. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious God, by your mercy and by your grace, I stand here not because I have any great intellect or any great favor or even that I can effectively put words together, but because of your mercy, you have chosen to use weak things, and that is how it is for all those who follow Christ. We are weak, and that magnifies the grace and the strength of our God. And so, Father, as, as we who follow Christ come today, we need your strength and your grace. And Father, we need, need to understand that humility must be a part of our lives and that we must be, we must be mindful And so, God, I pray that you would work for us who are believers. Convict us. Put your finger by the power of the Holy Spirit on those places, those times. Recall them to mind. That we live gracefully humble before all men. And, Father, if there are those who do not know Jesus as their Savior, Father, would they see who Jesus is, the beauty of one who is God, who gave of himself, left the throne of heaven to die a painful death for them. Was buried, was raised again, attested to as a historical fact. And he stands ready. In fact, he says, take my yoke upon me and learn of me. For I am meek, humble, lowly in heart. And you shall find rest for your soul. God, would you do a work in our hearts and lives. May we be like Christ. May we know Christ. For in his name we pray, amen. Heads bowed, eyes closed.